This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. Today I'll be joined by Professor Jeanette Wing, Professor of Computer Science at Columbia and also Columbia's new Executive Vice President of Research. Professor Wing will talk to us about how making artificial intelligence trustworthy in her terms is so hard due to the challenges even defining what fairness means. Why this is relevant for everything from what jobs you're shown on LinkedIn and whether your self-driving car will recognize that stop sign. Whether we're holding computers to a higher standard than we hold our fellow humans, and whether that's the right thing to do. Why academia can pursue innovation with the kind of patience that industry can't. The role that the National Science Foundation plays in driving national science research and policy. And the advantages that universities have over industry in terms of making big, fundamental discoveries. We'll also talk to her about the role her parents had in her career, and also what it's like to follow in her father's footsteps as an engineering professor at Columbia. Professor Wing, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you making the time. You, so you, you talk about your work centering on what you call trustworthy AI. So like maybe we can just start, and by AI, I mean artificial intelligence. So maybe we can just start there. What do you mean by trustworthy AI? And like, is there an untrustworthy AI? Oren, thanks for the question. I would say around the turn of the century, around 2000, 2001, the computing community got very interested in ensuring that the computing systems that we build, software and hardware systems, are actually trustworthy. And what does that mean? It means that they're reliable, so they do the right thing, they're correct, they actually spit out the right answers. It means that they're available, so they actually spit out an answer at some time. And also, there was a lot of concern about security and privacy. And for decades now, the computing community has been looking at ways in which to produce trustworthy software and hardware systems. Um, and many, many techniques since the early 80s um, have come to bear fruit on attacking the problems of trustworthy computing. Um, I should mention that another aspect of trustworthy computing is called usability, which is how to make computers actually usable by mm. mere mortals. Now, trustworthy AI ups the ante in two big ways. The first way is what new properties do we mean for an AI system to have to be trustworthy? And these new properties we never had to talk about before for computing systems. For instance, now we talk about robustness. How can you perturb an input value so that the output doesn't change? We talk about fairness. We never used to have to talk about mm. fairness of a computing system. In fairness in the sense of does the outcome um, show bias in any way about a, a decision being made about a person? We never had to talk about fairness. Um, so just these two properties, and then a, a, a third property, and, and then I'll stop, is called explainability. So a lot, right now, a lot of AI systems act as black boxes. You get a decision, you get an outcome, and the end user is clueless as to how you got that outcome. And what people want is an explanation of how that system uh, produced that outcome. So that's explainability. So that's one way in which trustworthy AI ups the ante on trustworthy computing. Hmm. But the other way is quite 
um, important as well. And that is a computing system for all of what we know and love are basically digital systems. They're Boolean systems, on or off, ones and zeros, yes or no, true or false. AI systems are probabilistic. The outcomes AI systems produce are probabilities. And all of a sudden, all the tools that we had at hand to prove that a computing system is trustworthy are, are insufficient. We now need tools that will allow us to reason about probabilities um, at the scale that we can reason about Booleans. And so trustworthy AI ups the ante on trustworthy computing in these two very important ways. What you're describing is that the closer you bring computing to being, to thinking the way a human does, the more, the same problems that humans fall into, computers start to fall into. I mean, the idea that like, are we free of bias? Are we, are we being fair in our, in our outcomes? Do we make decisions in reliable and robust ways? Um, is it clear to others why we make our decisions? I think it's pretty obvious that we would all fail in that test as humans. But That's but exactly right. And Oren, let me, let me pick up on that. And why, why are people so interested in AI systems today? Because of course, people use computing systems routinely and not even think twice about it and not even think about whether it's correct or not, they're correct or not. But for AI systems, people are interested in using AI systems to make decisions about people. Who gets the milk money? Who gets the low income housing? Who gets the bank loan? Do you get bail? And for medical diagnosis, reading, say, your x-ray or your CT scan, do you have cancer? Mm. These are pretty life critical, safety critical decisions about individuals. And of course, we care about whether the machine says yes or no, or with a more likely today, the machine will say, well, with 0.9 probability, you have cancer. Um, with 0.9 probability, you'll default on the loan. So these are decisions that affect human lives. And that's why there's so much interest in making sure these AI systems are, quote, trustworthy, that they're fair, they're robust, they're explainable. You, I, I heard you, I'll come back to this later, but I heard you give what I still think of as being certainly in the top five scientific talks I've ever heard someone give. And you talked about is something that I thought was really interesting because it brought, you know, the examples you gave right now are things where like I apply for a loan and I'm either rejected or accepted or I apply for a job and I'm rejected or accepted or I, I give my radiology scans and I either, or I'm told I either do or don't have cancer. But you made the point that, that it also impacts, you know, so much of our world comes through the computer these days that it actually impacts even the opportunities we are shown or not. So, you know, the jobs that we are shown on LinkedIn as potentially being relevant are different person to person based on an, a, a subjective view by the computer of what kind of jobs we'd be qualified for and what we'd be interested in. And, you know, on an individual by individual basis, that's a huge challenge. But even as a society in some ways, it could be even a bigger challenge. Uh, did I understand that right? Uh, many years ago, there was a study done to show that um, certain job opportunities uh, that people might search for say using Google, are shown only to men and not women. 
certain ads are shown to one population and not another population. And it's studies like that early on that um, alerted the research community to the fact that some of these AI systems that we're building are biased. And the reason is to train these systems that are recommending jobs or recommending ads um, use this data and if historical data. And if the historical data is biased, then it's no wonder the model is going to feed you a biased outcome. Mm. And so now this raises a, a, a challenge to all of us in the AI community, which is how can you detect whether your AI system is biased or not? And it's not even the hardest question. The harder question is how do you gather enough data to know whether the data that you're using to build your machine learning model is biased or not. Mm. Um, and then if you do detect something is biased, how do you fix that? We don't know how to do any of that. <laughs> so it, so this is actually as hard as it, you know, I, I mean, in some, in some ways it seems like these would be kind of no brainers. Like, well, of course you'd want it to be trustworthy. And of, of course you'd need to make sure there's no bias in the data. But then I think when, well, at least for me, when I reflect on, on, I mean, we all would like to believe we are the best version of ourselves and that, you know, we're free of bias and, and that we always make good decisions. Um, well, I but, think, and, and I, uh, here's, the, here's another reason why the fairness issue is even more difficult than I um, uh, am co conveying. And that is like good computer scientists, we have to formalize what we mean by fairness. And it turns out that we can actually formalize different a notion of fairness, um, which makes perfect sense. But in fact, we can formalize many notions of fairness. Mm -hmm. And there's a YouTube video out there called 21 Notions of Fairness, each one of which is perfectly reasonable. And here's the clinker. Take any two of those notions of fairness, and we can show it's impossible to build a machine that will satisfy both notions of fairness at the same time. That really causes problems because in, in trustworthy computing, we know true or false, right or wrong, yes or no. There's no debate. But with notions like fairness, if there's this range of acceptable notions of fairness. So it's, it's, fairness is a really tricky issue. But, but even if we didn't go to fairness and we just considered robustness, which is where you perturb the input a little and you want the outcome to be the same, even that's hard to accomplish for trustworthy AI. And the application here, Oren, is self-driving cars. So right now in, in your Tesla or in your very smart vehicle of the future, you will have or you have already a computer vision system that actually perceives the outside world and can detect change in the outside world faster than the human eye. But what it's not so good at is determining what is a risky situation or not. Um, but more importantly, it's very easy to fool these computer vision systems. And the canonical example is if you take a picture of a panda bear and you add a little noise, then the machine learning classifier that will say it's a panda bear 
might classify it as a monkey. Back to self-driving cars, again, if many years ago, a study was done to show that if you take a stop sign and you put a piece of duct tape on the stop sign, then that vision system will classify it as not a stop sign. So all of a sudden, you know, your self-driving car is merrily driving itself down the, the road and it sees a stop sign with a piece of duct tape on it. It's not going to stop. Right. And you're going to run the intersection and someone will run into you and you die. And that's not good. In some ways, we're holding computers to a higher standard than 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 we hold people. Like so so when you say a system has bias or a system, you know, might miss the stop sign if there's some duct tape on it or might misclassify the picture of an animal, you know, and that and that's unacceptable. It seems like it also raises the question of well, what standard are you even aiming for? Because when you think about humanity in general or like judges or executives making decisions or people looking to buy or sell stocks based on the information they have or even drivers in your example, like the number of times humans see a stop sign and still run the stop sign. Um, or we're checking, you know, we're changing the music on their phone or texting. You know, we, it seems like we as a society, are, we are heading towards a world where we are outraged when a computer makes the kind of mistake that humans make all day long. Like, so how do you guys figure out, like, how, how trustworthy is trustworthy enough? Is it 100%? That's a really good, you know, very good insight, Oren, in terms of are we holding computers to a higher standard than humans? Um, I would say right now, because so much of this technology is new and the applications are new enough and they're kind of on the edge. Um, and there's so much hope and promise and optimism as to what this technology can do to benefit society um, that we are holding the computer to a higher standard for good reason. Um, and I do think that over time, um, and I, I have examples of this, that um, for some applications, maybe uh, we will be more forgiving and we will understand that computers might make mistakes. In some applications, we already accept the fact that computers aren't perfect. You know, when you watch a movie on Netflix and they start recommending, uh, recommended for you, and don't you sometimes laugh at some of the recommendations they make for you? Mm, yeah. And they think they know you. Um, there's AI going on in the background, figuring out what your preferences are, figuring out what ads to show you, what things to recommend for you to buy next, um, figuring out what websites you might want to visit. All of these are, in some sense, except for security issues, in some sense, benign. I mean, if Netflix recommends a movie to you that you're just not interested in. It's it's okay. You just won't watch it. I, you know, I know the field of AI has been around for for a long time. But did you always know that this was going to be where you'd spend your career? Like when you were in middle school, did you think you were going to be? Or an I, AI I have to interrupt you because this is this is you you won't believe my answer. I am not an AI researcher. You know, to my fellow computer scientists, I. Do not. I am not a card-carrying AI researcher. It was really only when I joined Microsoft, um, running Microsoft Research, when I had to learn, like a graduate student on the job, um, a lot of the technology that was revolutionizing the industry. And in particular, it's a technology called deep learning, 
I witnessed the dramatic use of deep learning for speech recognition, image recognition, um, to the point where, you know, during my time at Microsoft, uh, with the amount of data that was available, with the compute power that was available, all the tech companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, um, and, and so on, um, you know, just ran wild with deep learning. And, you know, month to month, let alone year to year, we're making advances that would have surprised the early pioneers of AI. Um, and so I got into AI and I learned the techniques of AI on the job. Uh, my experience in computer science were, were in different areas of computer science. Um, and so, and then of course, in running the Data Science Institute here at Columbia, um, I was able to continue to learn and also promote the importance and influence that AI is going to have on every other sector. Uh, so I'm going to come back to your time at Microsoft in a moment and also the Data Science Institute. But so if you weren't interested in AI before that, or at least not studying it, um, were you, what was you, what were you working on? Like when you got to graduate school or high school yeah, or college? Okay. Like, <laughs> so uh, let me, let me share with you how I got to where I, I, you know, became a computer scientist. Um, so, and this will also explain why I'm in academia. So ever since I was four years old, Oren, I knew I wanted to teach. Mm. I just, I, I loved teaching. I loved getting in front of a group of children at the time and <laughs> uh -huh. telling them what I knew in front of a little blackboard. I had a little blackboard and chalk and I would pretend to be a teacher and all these, <laughs> uh, childhood friends of mine would sit sit in their chairs and pretend to be students and we would have fun together. I just, I loved teaching. Now, I didn't know what I was going to teach, but I knew I wanted to be a teacher. So in first grade, I wanted to be a first grade teacher. In second grade, I wanted to be a second grade teacher. And this kind of went on <laughs> until I, I realized that what I wanted to be was a professor. And I was clearly very influenced by the fact that my father was a professor, in fact, a professor of electrical engineering at Columbia University. So I knew I wanted to teach. And eventually I learned that I learned of myself that what I wanted to be was a professor. I still didn't know what I wanted to profess. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, now, at the same time as growing up, I loved math. I loved solving puzzles and I still do crosser puzzles. I loved logic puzzles. I loved math. Math was my favorite subject. But I also knew that I probably wasn't going to be a mathematician. Um, so the, the other you know, personal story is knowing that my father was a professor of electrical engineering is literally after dinner one night, I was in 11th grade and I asked my father, what is engineering anyway? And he answered with the perfect response. He said, engineering is applying math to solve real world problems. Oh my God, who wouldn't <laughs> want to be an engineer with that kind of answer? That's when I decided 
I wanted to study engineering and I wanted to be a professor. But but actually, it's interesting then because you've been in academia for most but not all of your career. And so obviously you were a very successful um, researcher at Carnegie Mellon before, you know, before coming to Columbia. But, but in between, you also spent time at the National Science Foundation. Um, and, and then, as you mentioned earlier, you did a tour of duty in private industry and not just a private industry, but one of the world's largest and most successful computing companies, Microsoft. And so given that you always wanted to be a computer science professor, um, what brought you to the NSF? And then why did you decide to go leave academia and go join Microsoft for a little while? Going to the National Science Foundation was, uh, first of all, it was life-changing for me. But making that decision to go to the National Science Foundation um, was a little um, happenstance. I was just I was just appointed as the head of the computer science department at Carnegie Mellon University, which is one of the premier computer science programs in the world. But um, the National Science Foundation was looking for a new assistant director to head the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Directorate. And I was a name on the search committee. Uh, and the person who called me up and said, you know, we really want you to consider this position. And I said no. And a lot of back and forth between NSF and, and me, basically my saying no, um, until the director called. I remember... Uh, I was trying to say no. I was trying to politely say no. <laughs> and I remember saying to him, well, I I could only do it if it were sometime in the future. And he said, like, when? And I was trying to pick a date far in the future that I'm sure they would say, okay, well, uh, that's too late for us. And I said, like, next summer. He said, that's fine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized... I had just agreed <laughs> to be <laughs> the new AD of size. And I would I wrote literally or remember I was standing with the phone in my hand when I my mouth dropped and I said, Oh my God, what did I just <laughs> agree to do? But then I did it. And it was again one of the highlights of my career to serve the NSF, to serve the country, to lead research and community uh, in computer science for the country was really such a privilege. And I was a naive academic going to DC. I was really one of these, you know, academics who had was pretty clueless as to how the government works. Um, so it was life changing in, in another sense in that I, I learned a lot about how the government works how the world works. Um, I was no longer an, you know, ivory tower academic who was very protected by, you know, the the walls of academia. And I, I really grew up. I, it was, it was, I mean, it was, uh, it was a very, you know, professionally and life changing experience for me. Hmm. Um, and and definitely a highlight of my career. Well, so of course, after NSF, you. Uh, I went back to Carnegie Mellon, and so the, the Microsoft story is a different one. Uh, the Microsoft story is uh, the person who was running research um, at the time. Uh, I knew him from when he was a faculty member at Carnegie Mellon, and Microsoft recruited him to create the labs. And he had been following my career for many years since I was at Carnegie Mellon, 
And for many years, he was trying to court me to Microsoft. And it was another one of those situations when I kept saying no. I said, no, I love academia. I like being at Carnegie Mellon. I, I'm happy with what I'm doing. And he also was quite persistent and, and asked many times. At one point, I said, you know what? He's not going to ask again. I better say yes this time. <laughs> Check it out. I mean, there's a bit of me, Oren, that's adventuresome. And I think this is either dangerous or good. Um, <laughs> so but <laughs> that's how I ended up at Microsoft. I said, you know what? I got to give this a try. I have to go find out what is it like to work in a company um, with an opportunity to run research at Microsoft. And at the time, running research at Microsoft was like running research, like running Bell Labs. You know, it was really a a huge opportunity, again, professionally for me. Um, and I'm glad I didn't turn that one down either because I learned so much. Uh, and also, Oren, the timing was good because, as I mentioned earlier, that's when AI actually really took off. So how does it feel to be back in academia then? I love being back in academia. One is just the value system. You know, it, it's all this highfalutin, which I truly believe in, that academia is about pursuit of knowledge. That speaks to me. It's not about making money. It's not about getting customer eyeballs on your service. It's about pursuit of knowledge. It's about asking questions and doing what it takes to answer those questions. It's about, you know, so it's scholarship. Ultimately, it's scholarship. Hmm. Now, um, the other reason is when push comes to shove, when you work for a company, it is about bottom line. Uh, and however, that bottom line is measured. So as much as, and, and Microsoft was an exception here of, of most of the tech companies, Microsoft really respects research. Um, so I was in a very good position there. But it, you know, research in any company is it's, it's not a business unit. In fact, it's a tax on all other business units. It, it can't be a priority for the company. Whereas in academia, it is a priority. You know, it's education, research, service, and at Columbia, the fourth purpose. On the other hand, industry needs academia. Industry cannot work on long-term problems or solutions that take a long time to develop. That is just not, it, it just, it actually doesn't even make sense. Unless you have a, a, a little research organization akin to a Bell Labs or the old Microsoft research. Um, that's why industry needs academia because academia is the place to work on the long-term problems um, whose solutions may take a long time to develop. I had colleagues at Carnegie Mellon in the 1980s. Jeff Hinton, you probably have heard that mm -hmm. name. He was working on neural networks. And, you know, we, he wanted to build a, a computer um, that was modeled after the brain with neurons connected and, and so on. And we, you know, we, we didn't think that it was a very practical idea at all. <laughs> but that was the 1980s. And by 20... 11, 2012, there was a transformation. 
because of the presence of big data and because of the presence of compute power. But it took, you know, three decades for all of that to mature. But once it did, wow, did it take off. Right. One needed to nurture the, the Jeff Hintons and to be patient, to be 30 years patient. Industry does not have that kind of patience. But yeah, academia to, does. It's hard to imagine a company saying, that sounds crazy, but sure, spend the next three decades exploring that. And we'll exactly. Find you, so. But sometimes those really are the kind of breakthroughs that change humanity. I mean, that's you, right. That solve our extent. So I want to I hear a little bit about your new role as the executive vice president for research at Columbia. Maybe you could explain to the audience first, what does that mean? Like, what does that role do? And also, why was this appealing to you? There are two major responsibilities I have in representing research for Columbia University. The first and foremost is about promoting research, high quality research. Um, and, you know, a lot of the research is really, you know, in the hands of the faculty and the graduate students. Um, so I don't really have to get in their way. But there are certain kinds of research that need a little help. Um, and these are um, collaborative, um, uh, usually interdisciplinary research projects where faculty may not know who in this, some other discipline is interested in the problem I have, who wants to work with me. Um, and then, of course, there are funding agency opportunities that require team efforts, cross-disciplinary efforts, um, multi-institutional efforts, and so on and so forth. So my role in e as the EVPR is to help promote the collaborative multidisciplinary research that is harder for individual faculty or even schools to do on their own. But it also gives me a way to really um, push research at Columbia in new directions. Um, that is not just Jeanette speaking. Um, I'm also, I also work and follow very closely um, what the society needs and what the country needs. Um, and this comes out sometimes in concrete ways of what federal agencies, what new programs federal agencies are putting forth. The second most important role of the EVPR's office is to ensure the integrity of the research process. So we need the public and media to trust the results of research. To trust the results of our research, we need to, we need to ensure that the process by which we conduct our research is pure. Uh, that we don't um, have conflicts of interest, that we comply by certain regulations. If we do human subjects research, um, we need to treat the subjects that are participating in our experiments uh, humanely and so on and so forth. And that you know, translates into what people know of what the EVPR's office does, which is a lot of compliance um, and making sure that grants that are submitted properly so that the funding agency will accept the, the proposal and process it and so on. So um, from the highest level, it's about promoting the excellence of research at Columbia 
and ensuring the integrity of the research process. Yeah, it, it's really, it's a very interesting role because in some ways it seems like it is both strategy at the absolute highest level of like, what does it mean to be a research institution? And, and how do you promote science and knowledge and how do you you know how, how do you do the research and then also it's a deeply tactical role of of how do you get grants processed and how do you get animals the animal testing is done the right way and the human subjects are treated the right way yeah, that's exactly right and Orin, i forgot there was another question that i wanted to answer which is what motivated me to take on this role and the the answer is actually pretty simplistic and it was it was really opportunity what I was seeing, and I am still crossing my um, fingers and holding my breath, what I was seeing was what was happening last summer in DC, which is a lot of congressional discussion and White House discussion about increasing funding research at the federal level. So there was already a lot of planning going on at the National Science Foundation, for instance, at creating a new directorate that they've done called Technology, Innovation, and Partnerships, which would be transformative for the foundation. It would be as transformative as creating NSF in the first place. I saw that as a huge opportunity for Columbia. And I wanted to make sure, as EVPR, that Columbia would be ready for that. And similarly, I saw a lot of rhetoric on partnerships with industry, uh, partnerships with the community, um, a lot of interest in really taking seriously diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and so I saw all of, I, I was hearing a lot of what was going on. And I said to myself, is Columbia prepared for these changes? And I asked that question. And then the person who who makes these kinds of appointments said, Jeanette, you're asking those kinds of questions. We're going to put you in charge. <laughs> you got to be careful. So, you keep ending up in these conversations. Or <laughs> this is the story of my life. I don't ask for these things. I just get myself <laughs> in the middle of it. If I saw correctly, you're a fourth degree black belt in martial arts. And so I was just wondering... Uh, you know, where do you find time for this? And do you still practice regularly? I don't, but Oren, what I wanted to share with you is I actually started uh, on, on on the fencing team. I was a fencer and then I moved into ballet uh, and eventually I did karate uh, and I don't do karate anymore. And I actually don't know what got into me to do karate because it was, it's actually quite a, a intense contact sport. Uh, and now I continue to do ballet and yoga. Oh. And I, I like those two activities because they're contact-less sports. Or, <laughs> 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 and you know my frame. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty thin, boned, and frail looking. Um, and believe me, every time I had to spar in karate, to me, a win was not getting hurt. <laughs> so I would believe And, and not- I would come back after karate class every night, especially in the beginning, and I would go straight to the freezer. And I would take all these different size ice bags out, <laughs> one on my, you know, my arms, my knees, my whatnot. I had ice bags like 
all different sizes. And that would be my life. And that's why I realized I don't miss karate. But so I would buy this all more if you weren't, if you hadn't stuck with it long enough to become a fourth degree black belt. So <laughs> if, that, if that's the hobby that you dabbled in, I shudder to think about the rest of your life. But yeah. <laughs> Professor Wing, you mentioned earlier in our discussion the great conversation that you and your father had over dinner, which sort of kicked off in some ways you're thinking about your career. And I'm interested in the role that your parents had in in your life, in particular your, your academic life, but in the way you've approached some of these decisions. And also, uh, when you moved back to New York uh, to come back to New York City and also to Columbia, where your father was a professor, what did they think about that move? Thanks, Oren, for your question, because both of my parents were quite influential in um, my career and my personality. I want to share with you another story about my father and how he influenced me early on. I decided to major in double E, like many MIT undergraduates at the time. And during my first semester as a sophomore, as a double E major, I was taking two program requirements, a double E course, Circumstances and Systems, and a CS course, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. And it's in the CS course, I was exposed to concepts that I had never seen before and that really blew me away. And it got me thinking as to whether maybe I should switch majors. But at the time, Warren, and I'm old enough to say this, um, Computer science was very new. There were no textbooks. Not many schools um, even offered majors in computer science. So I called up my father and I said, Daddy, I'm thinking about switching majors from EE to computer science. Um, but I'm not sure. Is computer science just a fad? And <laughs> of course, he said, no, it's not a fad. It's a great major and you'll do fine. And it's here to stay. Don't worry. And so I switched majors uh, based on my father's advice. And I never looked back. Yeah. So I, I credit my father for <laughs> being a professor, for going into engineering and majoring in computer science. Right. But I also wanted to mention something about my mother. I think it is my mother who gave me the adventuresome spirit and the spirit to take on new challenges and the confidence that I could tackle new challenges. Hmm. I really attribute those qualities that I have to my mother, but I really cherish both of them of, of what they they both gave me. Well, they sound like they were amazing parents. And uh, uh, what did they think of you coming back? Oh, they were thrilled. <laughs> well, okay. Here's another story, Warren. I obviously, with my father being at Columbia, grew up as a New Yorker, not just a New Yorker. When I was growing up, I we lived on in Columbia housing on mm. Amsterdam and 121st Street. Uh, and I used to play at the steps of the alma mater. And I used to play at Grant's Tomb, and I, I just grew up on Columbia's campus. I was a, a hardcore New Yorker. Now, like many New Yorkers at that time, we moved to the suburbs. But New York City was always the city. Right. <laughs> there was no other city in the world but New York. And all my life, I always thought, 
I gotta go get back to New York City. I, I want to live in New York City. Uh, and so obviously with my parents at the time, both living in New York City, they were thrilled to have me close by because all my life I was too far away to visit even on vacations. And finally, you know, I was close enough to actually see them every now and then. <laughs> right. And of course they were also happy. I mean, they, they were always very supportive of whatever career move I made. But of course, they were happy that I was at Columbia because they know Columbia and I was in academia because I think they know that I'm a hopeless academic at heart. <laughs> Professor Wing, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. You're welcome, Warren. 